Living near Yosemite spoils you with the beauty of the natural surroundings. But the area also draws exceptional artists and artisans, both those who grew up in the area and those who moved here to experience the Sierra Mountains every day. Join me as we chat with local creatives about their love for and joy of creating art in the Yosemite area. Today we're talking to Dorothy Gager, and I'm cheating a little bit on this one. She has been, her and her husband, Jerry, have been kind of our adoptive parents since we moved out into California and definitely our children's adopted grandparents. And so we've spent a lot of time with them. Just really excited to welcome you to the podcast, Dorothy. Thank you. And, you know, we talk a lot about Yosemite, and I know that Yosemite has been an important place for your family. You've been going there for for a while. So what was it like the the first time that you went? Uh, The first time was May the 10th, 1969, when Jerry invited me to do a hike. And I saw Tuolumne Meadows then. And, And a part of it was the charm of Yosemite. And part of it was the charm of a of a new friend. Yeah. Jerry's definitely a charming fellow. <laughs> uh, we've seen it in all seasons. We've seen it actually one time that is quite memorable was when we went to Curry Village and we, we had a, a tent cabin there, which was has a lovely floor to it and everything. But we went up from Fresno and it was just so romantic and charming. The swimming pool had been frozen over so that people were ice skating with classical music. And there were some women there who were in 19th century costumes with muffs and whatever. It was just a beautiful event. Yeah, that's cool. That's really charming. I have to admit that I've been a little bit stopped because of some of the former artists of Yosemite who have done so many marvelous things. Mm-hmm. There's Albert Bierstad. Oh, huge, huge things in the Oakland Museum. But he was so German and he was so down to detail and everything. And Thomas Ahrens and Ch- Chayura Obata in 1930. His stuff is so fresh and clean. I love, I love his stuff. And I've seen some of it in the gift shops. And then, of course, Ansel Adams, everybody knows him. But a lot of people have tried to say Yosemite. And I've been somewhat intimidated by that, by the grandeur of the place. And so I carry a lot of wonderful experiences and staying at the Wawona Hotel, lots of Thanksgivings, but but as far as really uh, trying to capture the magnanimity of the of valley, it, I, I haven't tried to do that. Yeah, it's it's kind of overwhelming, and as many times as it's been captured, it it just doesn't represent the grandeur of actually being there. Uh-huh. There's it always feels even when it's a great picture or painting or whatever, it feels like it's it just falls short of just being there. I know from knowing you for a while that you have many siblings and that they all are very, uh, have many unique talents. And so how did you, as a child, discover your artistic talent and and differentiate it from, you know, what your siblings were doing? 
That's a very good question. I didn't didn't feel any competition with my brothers and sisters. And I had an art voice, it must have been early on. We had about five sewing machines going, and so we designed our own clothes. And I don't know if that's where the public school teachers got the idea, but I was made aware of my interest in art by other people. <laughs> my nephew asked me recently, when was the first paid art? job that you had. And I was in high school, and the VFW asked me to do a an illustration of In Flanders Field. And that was the first paid thing. I think I got $5. But they showed it in the Rexall drugstore right on the square in town. That was the beginning. It's not, you didn't have like a sweatshop running at home. No. Was it? Okay. <laughs> it sounded like you had a lot of sewing machines going at the same time. I just want to make sure. Um <laughs> So you, you work with, you know, a lot of different media and uh, not just painting, you you sculpt and, and do, you know, I think you've done casting. Is that correct also? Um, so how did you start to, to branch out into that? How did you gain your artistic confidence? Well, I love that question too. On my website, I say content drives the media. So, and I don't feel like I'm master of all the media. However, I just keep learning. And to be a student of my art is, is important. I'll finish one piece and I'll say, oh, that's the best I've ever done. And then I go to the next piece and I think, well, that's, you know, I keep, you keep learning from your art. And we, we get better from learning from our, our own work. Some people say, oh, you're so talented. And I've, I have this wonderful book called Art and Fear, The Observations and Perils of Art Making by David Boyles and Ted Orlin. I'd just love to share that with anybody that might be listening. But he, they say that talent is a snare, that it's a delusion. And people say, oh, you're so talented. Mm. But um, he said, whatever you have is exactly what you need to produce your work. There is probably no clearer waste of psychic energy than <laughs> worrying about how much talent you have. <laughs> you have to know who you are, and you have to be pretty confident in that, and to give credibility to your art voice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so valuable. You have to accept yourself. That is kind of a lifelong process. You know, at age 90, Frank Lloyd Wright was still creating and okay. designing. And so was Imogene Cunningham and Picasso and Stravinsky and all those people. But, you know, one of the things these guys say, and I just totally agree with it, is to the artist, art is a verb. Okay. You just do it. And sometimes you get an inspiration and it wells up to the point that there are no words. Words are confining. There are no words to say it. You just have to do it. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite artists, who is his name is James Castle. He was deaf and mute, and he lived on a farm way up in Wisconsin. He used... He had art in him, and he used spit and charcoal from the fire okay, and just a twig from the tree. He created some of the most beautiful pictures of the farm and the buildings and the perspective and all of that is just, it's so amazing. So that my point really is, is that 
art is, if it's in you, it has to come out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something I've experienced in my own life, just the self-censoring and then needing to be able to get past that. And I think there's almost like emotionally and self-growth related, um, it relates to art and that you have to be willing to accept yourself as imperfect and learning, um, kind of take that growth mindset and and continue to learn and grow and and evolve. So yeah, I really like that. Yeah, I do too. And the other thing is that imagination, it it's wonderful, but it's really at the beginning of a piece. Imagination really kind of is the gas that gets you into, into the process of creating. But after that, as the piece grows, you have to have technique and you have to have the skill to take over and imagination becomes a less useful tool. We met at church and some of your work is religious, some of it's not, but how have you tried to kind of bring your faith into your work? How has that kind of inspired you? Well, with with the faith that I have, my spirit resonates with the creator. And I have a little story about that one Sunday afternoon, I was just looking at the Golden Gate Bridge, and here was a guy with a really long telescopic lens, and I just said, that'll be a wonderful picture. <laughs> he said, oh, I'd like to see it from the other side. So I said, well, come on with me. I'm a small town girl. <laughs> You're right. And so I took him in my car to the other side to Sausalito, and we went through a bar to the deck on the other side. And I got so excited. <laughs> Look at that. The sparkling water. Look at I mean, I just went into ecstasy. And mm -hmm. I it would just thrilled me so much. And the birds and the, uh, it, he said, he put his camera down and he said, and he he was a Navy photographer. He said it was really good. He said, I have tried every kind of drug to get that kind of high. <laughs> How do you get that? <laughs> and I just said, Well, I it, my I just resonate with it. It, mm -hmm. it brings me joy. Yeah, that's great. I think, you know, a lot of times when you talk to people of faith, they'll recognize God as, as a creator, but it's more like a, a function. Everything was made. But then I think sometimes what it's missed is that love for creation and loving what is created. And, you know, if if we are all created and if all, if God created it, and he also created us with that appreciation of beauty. What a, a good connection with art of when you create that piece and you want somebody to enjoy it. It's the same thing from God is that like he's created, he could have created just everything like functional, uh -huh. but he created a lot of things beautiful. Yeah. I remember when I was 12 watching a thunderstorm that was so dramatic from the porch of my grandfather's house in Maryland. And he... He was a hundred years old or so, but he quoted Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. I've, I've never been afraid in a thunderstorm. <laughs> yeah. There can be a power in the, the majesty, but it can also like create that, that feeling of imminence if it's understood differently. Yeah. So there's a few things that I know that you've done for the community and art we often think of as, you know, a small piece that hangs someplace in a home or in a museum. 
uh, but you've done some public art installations. So maybe chat about that for just a moment. <laughs> well, I was delighted to have to go present my ideas at Meadowfield Air Terminal in Bakersfield. And it was quite competitive. And I, I brought up Up in the Air Junior Birdman. And so I got the contract <laughs> and they hired me. I love doing the job. It's 12 feet tall and it's in the restricted area. Okay. But also the maquette is in bronze and it's at the Air and Space Museum in San Diego. Oh, in wow. In Balboa Park. Okay. And that's part of Smithsonian Institution. Oh, wow. That's, so that's, that's pretty, big time. Pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you've done Stations of the Cross and were those, those were sculptures, right? Those are bas-relief in bronze and they're uh, in a garden outside the Chapel of Holy Innocence. And so I was, I was told to put uh, children in wherever I could put them in. And so it's it's really a nice thing because people can go by like in wheelchairs or blind people can touch them and feel them. And they're only 21 inches off the ground. It's a whole little mini series of ecosystems through the garden. You know, a lot of times artists created and you want that connection with it. You want the person viewing it to have a response and to connect with it. How was it different to think about creating a piece of art where it's not just supposed to represent what's there, it's supposed to guide you to a, a higher truth, but also because it's on a path that you're walking and it's in a garden, what was it like trying to create something that involved a lot more of the body than just the eyes? Oh, so the touch and the feel and whatever. Yeah, well, and also like mm -hmm. there's an experience of, you know, walking and traveling mm -hmm. and, you know, it's the Stations of the Cross, so there's like a, a buildup. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's really kind of an experience that you're going through. Yeah, it is an experience. I could probably answer the question that way. Across the street from this chapel is a fast foods place, and a gentleman came out one day and he was weeping, and a street person on the on the ground who sitting in the gutter said, "What's the matter, bro?" And the guy said, "I I just learned that my brother died." He said, "You go across the street there and you walk around that path." He said, "That'll help you." <laughs> wow. That's what an amazing story. That's like a, a divine appointment almost, right? Like that somebody who society would often overlook was able to bring comfort to yeah. somebody in the moment by directing them to the to the art installation. So that's, I, I don't know that you could imagine a much better outcome than something like that. That really helped me a lot to see the value of art as well. Also, Two months ago, I was in the hospital for an extended period of time, and my website got picked up by somebody uh, who was the director of music of the National Shrine to St. Maximilian Colby. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it is, and I learned who he was. I didn't know who he was, but this musical director saw a piece of my art, and he wanted to use it for their Sunday worship um, brochure. And of course, I said, yes, I just wanted some copies of it. But here I was in the hospital, but my art was still speaking for me. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. What's been your experience with the artist is often solitary in their work, uh, but it's presented to the community. So, I mean, it sounds like that was a point in time where you needed some encouragement 
some relief and somebody really appreciated your work. So what's that been like with the community or people who have viewed your art giving you positive responses? Like, is that a very fulfilling feeling, I assume? Well, of course, it is very fulfilling. <clears throat> what is fulfilling to me is people who 30 years prior have seen a piece of my art that I've totally forgotten about. Mm -hmm. And they remember and they see me in that art. Okay. And they will recall that and even Christmas cards that people have saved over the years. And it's just very rewarding. But I have not arrived at all. I'm not 90 yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still going to continue to grow and try new. I've just recently tried a new technique called the tempera batique. And it's really scary because you do a real fine first run of it, and then you have to cover it all, all the tempera and everything, you cover it with India ink and leave it overnight and then wash it off in the morning and that India ink falls into a lot of spaces and gives a black cast to it. It's kind of scary, but it's a new technique and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I have to give a little bit of context to that as well, because uh, you mentioned the Christmas cards thing. So that's uh, another thing that I know that you do. And yeah. we've enjoyed that several times. It's always been wonderful. And the Tempera Batik, you depicted our recently passed dog and you created a picture with him with a, a solo cup on his head, which kind of uh, embodied his personality. And then you created those as cards and you sent them to my kids who are still kind of mourning that. So I really appreciate that. And I think that that's another good example of how you've taken your art and not just let it be something for viewing, but also to bring happiness and joy and connection and to help people who are maybe mourning. Thank you. I know you taught reading, right? I did. D did you teach art at all? I've never taught art. Okay. It's really hard for me to put it in a category of discipline. Mm -hmm. But art when I did teach reading, I brought to it um, my art experience, and I did create a couple children's books. And there's one thing that I, when I see a, a child and he's looking at the English language, there are five ways to know a letter, six ways to know a letter. Okay. Orientation and up and down, capital, whatever. And so these children with slow learners, they... I wondered, how how are they seeing this print? And my education with abstract art helped me because I realized I needed instruction to know how to look at abstract art. And so as a teacher of children who had reading disabilities, I had to see that they needed some discipline and some hallmarks of how to look at language. And what was it like then to be able to see taking your art experience, bringing it to the reading, and then seeing that light kind of turn on for the kid? Oh, that's phenomenal. That's yeah. It's really, really fun. And I did, one of the books I did is a flip book. And a lot of children have trouble with a BD confusion. So I went from capital letter, they all learn capital letters first, to lowercase letters. And the B is just... It's just the bottom bubble of the capital letter. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, there's a visual aspect to learning to read and uh, bringing an art background into seeing the letters uh, uh -huh. would provide a different perspective for kids 
who've probably had a lot of frustration not being able to to just get there like everybody else. Mm-hmm. 